did I not see this coming? Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Year of Polygamy podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, and I think I've hit the holy grail. I know I've had so many great uh, historians on here like Claudia Bushman and Mike Mike Quinn and so many others, uh, but... This is the historian I've been trying and begging and pleading with for years to come on the podcast. And I'm so honored to have Connell O'Donovan on the podcast. Connell, can you say hello? Hello, everyone. It's good to be here. So, Connell, I don't know if you've listened to the last two episodes, but I basically uh, fangirl you the entire time. I talk about how important your work is, and I mean that so sincerely. The, The research and the history that you have done, the excavating these stories is so priceless to this community. I don't think that there is ever a way that we can repay you. You have done so much work for us. So I'm just fangirling to you in person because I get to do that. (laughs) But why don't you tell us about yourself a little bit? Give us some background on who you are and how you even got involved in researching this stuff. Well, um, my name's Connell and I'm a double Virgo with a Scorpio moon. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, I was, uh, I'm, I'm a native Utah, born in Syracuse, early raised in Syracuse, Utah. Uh, but uh, actually most of my childhood was spent in Fairbanks, Alaska. And then, um, as a teen, uh, uh, one of my coping mechanisms for being in a, a closeted gay teen was that I was, became very fascinated with early Black Mormon history, and spent a good deal of time at the the old uh, LDS Church archives when it was in the church office building, uh, researching that topic. And it was Brent Metcalf who got me interested in uh, one uh, early Black uh, uh, Mormon named sorry, uh, an early Black Mormon named. Q. Walker Lewis, and he happened to be from Boston. And so I started researching Walker Lewis's life. Oh, gosh, it was probably in 1978. And then about 10 years ago, I was able to publish his biography and, and prove that he had been one of the uh, seven or eight black Mormon men to have held priesthood before Brigham Young's time, but also in doing all that research, I learned a lot about early Boston and the Mormon church as it existed there in the 1830s and 1840s. And so that really kind of resonated with me a lot with all all that was happening in, in Boston at that time, the abolition movement, the early uh, women's rights movement that was happening women were speaking in public for the first time because before that it had been not only socially unacceptable for women to speak in public, but most often illegal. And in the 1830s in particular, women started to speak out in public and hold public meetings. And Boston was an early groundbreaking space for that to happen. But why focus on that? Why weren't you like every other historian that was really obsessed with Nauvoo or Kirtland or the early church history? What made you think, wow, this is something we need to look into? You just answered the question because every other historian was looking at Nauvoo and 
and Jackson County, Missouri, and you know Kirtland, and nobody was looking at the eastern branches of the church. You know, here and there they brush by it, but nobody was focusing on it. And that was, you know, a light went on on my head, and I went, "Wow, what if we looked at just Boston? What was going on there?" And you're known for being the primary biographer for Augusta Adams Cobb, who was one of the plural wives of Brigham Young. Why her? Because it seems like, what, from what I know of your research, you really have an affection for her. You've sort of become attached to her. Is that fair to say? She's kind of my uh, spiritual grandmother. <laughs> I love Augusta. And so I fled Utah after being a gay rights activist, a radical gay rights activist here in Utah. In the, from the late 80s until 1984, I fled Utah to Santa Cruz, California, and I lived there for 20 years. And I was working at UC Santa Cruz when the internet came out. One day, it was about 1996, it wasn't Google back then, it was Alta Vista, I think, was the, the big search engine. But I was, in essence, I was Googling various Mormon topics, and I came across this a catalog for a collection it was the Wisconsin State Archives, and it said, collection of Augusta Adams Cobb, wife of Brigham Young, and I'm, and I'm looking at it, and I'm like, why does Wisconsin State Historical Society have this massive collection by Augusta? And I started looking at it. There were 300 letters that Augusta wrote to Brigham Young in this collection, <laughs> and I was just like, what is this? This is really crazy. So I ordered a microfilm from them of all of her letters. They sent it to me and I started going through it. You see Santa Cruz in the library there. The letters are in pretty bad shape. Most of them are written in pencil, which does not translate to being scanned very well. They're very light and hard to read, but I became very adept at reading her handwriting and I started transcribing all all these 300 letters and then learning more about her life and researching about her, you know, and basically after they, and she was from Boston, she originally from Boston. Well, originally she was from Lynn, which was a, a small town near Salem, Massachusetts. But then her and her husband, her first husband, Henry Cobb had moved to, to Boston. And then Brigham Young as a missionary came through and she fell in love with Brigham in the 1830s. Then on his 1842 mission to Boston, when he left Boston to return to Nauvoo, she went with him because she was in love with him. And uh, she got married, sealed to Brigham there in, in Nauvoo. Then within three years, she had grown to hate Brigham Young. <laughs> and by the time they got to Utah and everything, she initially was housed in Oh gosh, is it the Lion House or the Beehive House? They always confuse me as to which one is the. So she initially lived in the Beehive House, and then their relationship became so acrimonious. He forbid her to ever come into the, the Young family compound again, and had a little house built for her, which is which was next door to the old social hall on State Street, about fifty five South. If, if you live in Salt Lake City now, it's where the Harmon's Grocery Outdoor Plaza is, uh, out front of Harmon's Groceries. There's a, 
a cement plaza, and that's where Augusta Cobb's house was. She called it her little nutshell because it was just originally just a, a one-room cabin, and it became more elaborate as years went by. But because Brigham had forbidden her to come on to the young family compound where the Lion House and the Beehive House and where the uh, Marianne Young's house was, she had to resort to writing him letters to communicate to him. So that's why she had, had written all these letters, mainly complaining to him about her state and what was going on and, and how much she hated him and why. And, oh, and, and she used some really fun, colorful language, Brigham Young's face, you know, and it's just the, the letters are incredible. But yeah, so... Okay, so I want to dig more into her life because it's really interesting to me. But as we're as we're talking about this Boston um, Boston Mormons, we've already sort of talked about Joseph T. Ball, Samuel Brannan. Our next episode is going to be on William Smith. So we focused a lot on the men there, but I want to focus on the women, and Augusta is one of them. Yes. I actually have so many questions for you about her because I do find that in in your work we just talked about in last episode. Her, her uh, relationship with Brigham really influences Brigham a lot, right? Because he's on trial in Boston and, and things like that. So it's sad for me to hear that it became acrimonious later on in the frontier period, which wouldn't be unusual for a lot of Brigham's wives. So we, so let's talk about that. But okay. before we get into Augusta's life, can you talk to us about women in Boston in general first? What life would have been like? During this period in the 1840s, why women, uh, you mentioned that women were the first converts to the Boston area. What is it about Mormonism that spoke to Boston women? Uh, you know, I, I actually don't know that I have a, an answer to that question. So the, just some background facts. The first of the first like 20 or so converts to Mormonism in Boston, which started in 18, well, yeah, 1831, uh, but really picked up speed in, in the next summer of 1832. Out of those 20 first, 20, uh, the first 20 converts, one was a man, Alexander Badlam, who was Marianne Brannan's husband, and Marianne was the wife of Samuel Brannan. Okay, so that's the connection there. But otherwise, you know, the first convert was Vienna Jacquis. And uh, she had gone, she'd heard about Mormonism, I think probably through Thomas B. Marsh. Because Marsh, who later became an apostle, he was from Boston. And even though he had left Boston, he wrote lots of letters to his friends in Boston. Vienna became really curious about Mormonism and actually went to Kirtland in the fall of 1830. Uh, after meeting Joseph Smith and everything, she got converted and she returned to Boston with several copies of the Book of Mormon. And it was those copies of the Book of Mormon that circulated around in her female circle that got all of these women interested in Mormonism. So Augusta Cobb was living in Boston by 1832, her, her and Henry, and they ran a boarding house. And Augusta Cobb had got one of these copies from of the Book of Mormon from Vienna, apparently, and she left it out in like in her reading room for her the boarders that stayed at her her boarding house. And several 
women that were there in her boarding house read the Book of Mormon and converted, as did Augusta. So there was sort of this, it, it was the passing around of this Book of Mormon or, or several copies of it that Vienna had brought that led to these women joining. Why? I'm not sure. Vienna herself is the only one who left an account of why she of what happened about her conversion, and that was she when she brought her copy back from Ohio. She kind of skimmed through it, wasn't really impressed, set it aside, and then one night she had a dream about the Book of Mormon, and so then she picked it up and and really started reading it, and that's when she became convinced. You know, Mormonism was actually the, the true church for her. Now, she was one, we've never really talked about her. We've mentioned her here and there, which is kind of a shame because some people consider her a plural wife of Joseph Smith. Um, there's some some evidence to, to go that way. Where do you land on that? Do you think that she was a plural wife of Joseph Smith? I think she probably was. Her letters to back and forth to Joseph Smith reveal like a certain intimacy that I would say goes above and beyond just friendship but yeah i don't i don't know for sure but i would suspect that she likely was a, a, an early plural wife of joseph smith okay and what tell us more what else do we know about her life just like a brief brief synopsis more than um what you've said where does she end up how does her mormon story end Oh, as you know, that's a good question. I, one of the interesting things about her is that early, before her conversion to Mormonism, her name was Vianna Jackwith. So it was Vianna with two A's and then Jackwith, J-A-Q-U-I-T-H. And after she converted, she always went by Vienna, like the city Vienna, and Jackwith, J-A-C-Q-U-E-S. Kind of spelled like the the French name Jacques, and and her name is often pronounced incorrectly as Jakes or or Jacks, but it was actually Jacquis is how her surname was pronounced. She was a nurse and a laundress in bon, in Boston, a, a, a long time unmarried woman, and, and unless she married Joseph Smith, but otherwise uh, she's not known to have had another husband, and I. You know, <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't recall off the top of my head what happened to her. Okay, so like a lot of people in Mormon history, this is this is why I appreciate your work so much is you know, it we only really have a lot of the histories of women that were connected to prominent men and it's hard to find out more other than, you know, like family heritage stories or things like that that get passed along. Yeah. So, um I think the small brief amount that we do have is a, is an attestation to the fact that she was connected to these these men, but she was prominent in Boston. She was influential. Who who are some other women that we should know of in the Boston area at the time? So there was uh, Fanny Brewer, uh, another. I think she'd had a, a a husband, but was now widowed, and she. And I, but I could be and I could be wrong about that. I it's been a long time since I've looked at a lot of, a lot of my research on these women. She also had a boarding house in just north of the Boston Commons, uh, and just kind of behind the the Boston. Uh, what's the big the Boston State Building? Is that what it's called? With the gold dome. Oh yeah, where the Boston Massacre was, right? Yeah, 
her, her, her boarding house was just behind the Boston State Building or the Boston. It looks like a Capitol building, but it's just for Boston. Anyway, and then it's on Beacon Hill. That area had originally been a really swanky neighborhood in the 1700s. But by the 1820s and 30s, it had grown quite dilapidated. And uh, a lot of African-Americans had moved into that area. By the way, Um, you're correct. It's called the Old State House. Okay, thank you. (laughs) You looked it up. Uh, So a lot of African-Americans had moved into that neighborhood and, and Beacon Hill actually became known as, well, I, I'm going to use the, the euphemism Negro Hill. And that also actually, that, that kind of poor working class neighborhood was the location of a lot of these early Boston converts. They were neighbors with each other. So Fanny Brewer had her boarding, boarding house there. And two of the, her boarders that lived with her uh, were Polly Vos, who was an aged, uh, unmarried woman, and then her niece, uh, Ruth Daggett Vos, uh, who would later become a plural wife of Joseph Smith, um, and, and involved in polyandry, because she did get married to Edward Sayer, who was not a Mormon. She married Edward Sayer in 1841, and then she married... While still married to Sayer, she married Joseph Smith in 1843. Um, but so Mary and, excuse me, well, she went, Mary, Mary Vos went by Polly. That's a nickname for, for Mary. Polly Vos and her niece Ruth Vos were involved in this massive furniture uh, company. They, they, they owned and ran their own furniture uh, company in which they took raw lumber and had it made into furniture and upholstering it, varnishing it. Alexander Badlam, who we talked about earlier, he was a varnish maker. And so he supplied the varnish for the Vos's furniture. They, they were quite wealthy. Fanny Brewer was quite wealthy. Later on, Fanny and the Vos's contributed hundreds and possibly probably thousands of dollars to the construction of the Kirtland Temple. The Kirtland Temple would not have been built without those three women and the money that they contributed because it was so such a substantial amount. Fanny Brewer herself moved to, to Kirtland and opened a hotel near the temple called the Boston House and ran it for a while. But then she left Mormonism and and it. I can't remember if she returned to Boston or if she stayed in Kirtland. I, I, I think she returned to Boston, but I'm not sure. And Fanny's sister, Martha, also converted to Mormonism and and resided in the Boston house in Kirtland for a while. This She's not Mormon, but you talk about Abby Folsom, who was a suffragist. And I, right. I still have to correct myself. Barbara Jones Brown reminds me to not say suffragette. That's like a derogatory term. Suffragist. Um we talked about how she shut Brigham Young up by heckling him in a meeting. And I love yeah, that story. She, she did twice, actually. And um, she was, yeah, Abby was, she, Abby's my hero. I, t- I totally love Abby Folson. She was called the flea of the conventions because whenever the men were holding these political conventions, it, and this was all over like Massachusetts, and, and I think she even went into Philadelphia for some of them. But she, 
because women were not allowed to participate with men in these political conventions and stuff, or she, she would just stand up and start heckling the speakers. She would make animal noises and things like that. And, um, well, and it's I, so it funny, worked. like when you when you contrast that with Brigham Young in later years, he's the lion of the Lord. No one wants to mess with him to think that this woman just like <laughs> shut him down, shut him down twice, twice. Yeah, I can't give you the exact dates, but um, the Mormons, the, the, the Mormon branch in the early days would just meet in private homes. And most of them, most of the time, like in the early 1830s, it was at Fanny Brewer's boarding house is where the, the circle of women met for, for a good 10 years. Uh, but then later, like about 1841, they started renting out like Julian Hall and Faneuil Hall and other places where they could have public meetings, Worcester Hall, Franklin Hall. And, you know, and they published in the in the newspaper, the Mormonites, no, that was the early word for Mormon. It wasn't Mormon, it was Mormonites. The Mormonite meeting is being held at Julian Hall on such and such a day and time. And so Abby would show, Abby showed up at two of these, where they're at both times when Brigham Young was speaking. And she got up and started heckling and I tried to get her to be quiet and she wouldn't stand, she wouldn't sit down and she wouldn't shut up. And, and at the second one, a riot broke out a bunch of youth that were sitting up in the balcony were so amused by her antics that they started following her, you know, cackling and making animal noises and the police had to be called and it was just a big riot. <laughs> yeah, it was, I, I, I love Abby. Yeah, I love and I appreciate you incorporating that intersection into Mormonism because we do talk about suffragists in the Utah period, you know, with Emmeline Wells and, and women like that, but it's it's kind of great to see that early New England history crossover with Brigham Young. So yeah. um I want there oh gosh, there's so many things I want to ask you, but let's go back to Augusta Adams Cobb. So can you tell us anything about the personal dynamics between her and Brigham early on and then how it shifted? And I just had to point out Ben Park heard that I was interviewing you and he said, You need to plead with Connell to finish up her letter project. So <laughs> Well it's it's okay. It's finished. Um, I just need to do something with it. Um, so Augusta, who, who, by the way, was an early suffragist, she, she got medical training in the 1820s from, oh, I think it was Elizabeth Gov was her name. Augusta became really involved. She was, she was a member of the Boston Anti-Slavery Society, and then became really good friends with Lucy Stone, who was an early Boston suffragist and women's rights activist. And so that heavily influenced Augusta. And Augusta is said by her daughter, Charlotte, many years later, is said to be the one who convinced Brigham Young in 1870 to let Mormon women vote. And then Brigham Young then went to the legislature and, you know, of course, had the, the legislature pass a bill allowing women to vote. Um, Augusta, oh, how do I, for, for, to start off, Augusta was a dreamer who came from a really 
kind of a sad background. She was she was a she was a climber. She was definitely a social climber. She had come from genteel poverty. <laughs> Her ancestors were you know well known in the revolution, and there there was uh, had a lot of money and stuff. But by the time that Augusta was born, the family's fortune did not exist. So she had this great name that she wanted to tout, but she didn't really have anything to back it up with. And in fact, was she was a, um, an orphan by the time she was eleven, I believe. Both of her parents having died early, um, but but she would make claims that as an Adams that she was related to the John Quincy Adams, and she's not. And then her mother was a courier. Excuse me, no, her mother's maiden name was Ives. Sorry, and so she claimed that she was related to the courier and Ives company fortune, and she was not. It's a two. It's two different Ives families. <laughs> so she kind of created in her head this this idea that she she was someone of importance. And when she married Henry Cobb, who was a middle lower middle class shoemaker from Lynn, she was kind of trying to hitch herself to a rising star because he was going places, and and he did. You know he. He grew his his shoemaking company substantially, was able to move to Boston and increase it greatly. And then they had this boarding house, so they were getting income from this boarding house. And she was kind of so she was being upwardly mobile with her husband Henry. Then she meets Brigham, who's an apostle in this church that she now believes in. And then upon finding out about polygamy from Brigham, she wants to marry him and become a you know a queen in Zion. That's that's her her big desire. Now, do we know anything about her feelings at the time? Because this was when he approaches her, it's still very secretive. It's very taboo. I mean, it's always going to be taboo, but especially so in the cultural climate at the time. Well, there's several of her later letters from the 1850s and 1860s do go back and reveal a lot about this time in her life and she writes to Brigham, you know, about what was happening and in, in very unhappy terms, she understood that she was Brigham's second wife. She did not realize that actually she was his third wife because he had already married polygamously Decker. Clarissa Decker was his, was Brigham's first plural wife. And he didn't tell Augusta about Clarissa Decker until after he had gotten sealed to Augusta. So she thought she was wife number two in his, in his queenly, I, I don't want to, I, I, I guess harem. I mean, that's, that's kind of a negative word. But then as soon as Joseph Smith dies, then in 1844, then Brigham Young suddenly is marrying all of these women that had been plural wives of Joseph Smith. And so now Augusta is not only wife number three, which she didn't like. She wanted to be number two, but now she's number three of you know forty-eight. <laughs> so she it that him marrying all these other women lessened her status in her own eyes. You know, I mean, she was still married to Brigham Young, who was at this point, de facto leader of the Mormon church. She was just one among many who were, 
and she lost a lot of her street cred, I should say, in when, when he married all these women. And so that, that's what. So is it fair to her. say? And I don't want to be reductive of her experience, but it's. Do you think that she saw it as an opportunity to do something important or make a name for herself, or do you think it was more complicated than that? In reading her letters, it's all about her name. She 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 talks about her name constantly, and that means. Her, her heritage, her family, her background, her heritage, her reputation, and her name means a lot to her. And he sullied her name. And the, the, whole, the whole divorce thing that happened with, with Henry Cobb really was a devastating blow to her and to Brigham. Because Brigham was trying to keep you know, polygamy out of the public eye. But now it's a pub, a member of or now it's a, a part of public record that he has married Augusta Cobb, and it's in all the newspapers. You know, at least a hundred newspapers covered the the Cobb divorce proceedings in the newspaper, and um, and that really angered and hurt uh, Augusta. Her children were devastated by it because her children did not follow her into Mormonism. She, she, she abandoned her children, except for her two smallest, young Charlotte, and then a younger, even a, a little boy who died en route to Nauvoo. So oh, she took on, with her only Charlotte. The rest of her, her older children all stayed with Henry, and they were trying to be these proper, you know, Boston Brahmins. And all of a sudden, their mother's name is in the newspaper as an adulteress having married bigamously, you know, to Brigham Young. It sounds like it was a, a risky thing to do. She took this on. Her name gets dragged through the mud. So when you say that Brigham ruined her name, you don't mean at the beginning, you mean later on? Well, I mean, I, I, it, it, he ruined her when he married her. And she she often complained about that. Oh, okay. I she says in her letters, I wish I'd never had done what I did in Nauvoo. That was, I should not have married you. I ruined I, you know, um, it's destroyed my life. It's destroyed the lives of my children. But Brigham would not divorce her. And that was, which was interesting. And, uh, you know, he divorced some of his wives, um, but they went on to tell, to write tell-alls. And so I think the reason, the reason he kept Augusta close by but also didn't divorce her was to prevent her from writing a tell-all novel. Because if if she had written a tell-all novel, <laughs> it, things wouldn't have been gone really well for Brigham Young. She knew too she, much. She knew way too much. Did she keep the faith to her death? Out of necessity, there wasn't anything else she really could do, I guess. But yeah, I think I think she continued to believe, be a believer in Mormonism, although she lost her faith in Brigham. But um, you know, and she continued to be a, she she would beg Brigham for a divorce, and then you know, and she was always trying to find someone important to marry, and so she would look, you know. Well, and no one's going to touch Hebrews? that situation with a 10-foot pole, knowing that it's the prophet, the line of the Lord's wife, right? She can beg men to marry her all she wants, but no one is going to cross Brigham Young like that. Well, no, she was begging Brigham Young, 
asking him, can I marry Hebrew C. Kimball? Please let me marry him. I mean, it's got to be really bad if you're begging to be married to Heber Kimball. (laughs) Well, she would, I think it wasn't in the first presidency. So if it it wasn't going to be Brigham, it was, she wanted someone high up. When uh, that failed, she wrote him a letter requesting to be sealed to the Apostle Paul. Oh, that's interesting. Brigham turned that down. And so then she said, well, then I want to be a plural wife of Jesus Christ. And asked to be sealed to Jesus as one of his plural wives. Well, I mean, I admire her confidence. That's and it, and it's kind of logical, you know. Yeah, of course. If you can do sealings for the dead, and you can do marital sealings for the dead, why not be? And with the more the early Mormon belief that Jesus was a polygamist, you know, they was married to Mary and Martha. And, and Mary Magdalene. Why not? And I think we're so trained in the Mormon culture and in society in general, but especially Mormon culture for women. Women can't ask for power, right? We don't want them to ask for power. You're not supposed to do that. It's considered prideful. And yet you're completely right. It's the logical thing to do. But what would you say to people who are listening and who are, you know, sympathizing with Brigham here saying, well, it sounds like she was a lot to handle. She was just a climber, a social climber. She just wanted power and authority what would you say to to people like that well i mean she was that, that as much as i love her there she was she was a lot to handle and you know and honestly and i'm gonna say, i'm not a psychologist but when i read her stuff as someone i myself am diagnosed bipolar i when i read her stuff i'm going oh my gosh she is so bipolar in one letter her emotions can soar to the highest heights of love and devotion to Brigham Young. And then she'll scream at him in the next paragraph about how irresponsible he is to her. And then at the end of the letter, she'll sign off as your humble servant who wants nothing to, but be, to be obedient to her Lord Brigham Young. <laughs> and you're like, wow, that was a roller coaster. <laughs> And that's so um, hard, though, because they were, you know, those are all real feelings, though. Like, she was oh, feeling all of that. Yeah. But, in, I mean, it, sometimes it's in letter after letter after letter, just that that constant up and down and up and down. And I hate you. I love you. I hate you. I love you. Uh, yeah. I respect you. I'm your abject servant. But then sometimes she's really arrogant. She often, not often, a few times signed a few times she signed her letters, The Lioness of the Lord. Oh, which is, wow. Oh, my goodness. That, that's the title of the, my book, if I were, if I were yes, to publish it. Yes, it's so good. She was the Lioness of the Lord. And another fascinating thing about her letters is how she would sign them, because she rarely used her name, and, and she would use different phrases and uh, different emotions to sign off. Her, to sign her letters at the end and that would kind of always be a summation of how she felt in that letter do you have so other examples there, there are about 10 letters in which she refers to herself as either uh, to she refers to herself as the lioness of the lord or as a lioness or where she signs the letter as lioness of the lord the ways that she signed off of her letters, I just, they're, they're just, like I said, they're kind of, they encapsulate the feeling of each letter that she's written. So, for example, 
three letters that she writes to Brigham Young in a row, she signs them off as just lioness. And in these, you know, she's being really fierce and, and you know, making a stand. And then in the next letter, she's much more subdued now and she's cooled off. And so she signs that letter, the lamb. I think that's really interesting. But other ways, other names or, or words that she uses to sign off her letters are disconsolate, faith, hope, independence, heartless, contentment, humorsome, frailty, and then like holy indignation, disappointment, and deliverance, which I really like. And then your possession in the valley of decision in one really um, eruptive letter. She, she signs it off as Mount Etna, <laughs> which is a volcano. When she was feeling really good about her relationship with, with Brigham, she would sign her name like Augusta Adams Young. Uh, but as we'll talk about in a minute, she was also sealed to Joseph Smith as a plural wife for eternity. And when she was in one, for example, one letter, she signed her letter, her very angry letter as Augusta Adams Smith, all caps, underlined twice. Wow. <laughs> to, to really emphasize, you're not my real husband. <laughs> so anyway, that, that those are some of the ways that she signed up her letters. It's so interesting to see the way that women leveraged the power that they had, the small amount of power that they had. So... I mean, that was her sort of exercising her autonomy with the tools that she had. Don't, do you think that's a fair way to say that? Oh, absolutely. Yes. And and so those letters each would reflect the tone of the letter? Right. Kind of, it was kind of a summation of how she was feeling, just in case he didn't get it. <laughs> wow. In some of her letters, too, she, she talks about being whipped or beaten by Brigham Young. Wow, do we believe that to be true? Is that something that he was known for? Um, not that I know of from, from other women's experiences. Because we know, I mean, it's not unheard of. Joseph F. Smith was caught beating his wife in the street with <laughs> one night with a like a rod. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Well, now that I mentioned it, people are going to ask for it. So I'm going to link to it. But yeah, he had a temper and he chased one of his wives out into the street with the with a stick and his argument was that it wasn't, you know, two inches wide. So it wasn't abuse. Wow. I didn't, I didn't know that. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to link to it. There's a great Sunstone article. It's just called before the beard trials of the young Joseph F. Smith by Scott Kenny. And he talks about Joseph F. Smith's temper and how he beat his wife. So it's certainly not unheard of. Yeah. So certainly a contentious relationship. Did she get along with, other sister wives, especially in, uh, in Utah? No, not at all. And she was <laughs> she was always really jealous of them. And, and she would write letters to Brigham saying, you know, I saw you in the carriage with a, a gaggle of your wives the other day riding down the streets and you're all happy and mirthful and here I am alone and object, you know, in, in, in solemn humiliation in my home, you know, and yeah, she she never. The the only one that I do know she got along with was Eliza R. Snow, and they were they lived together initially, right in eighteen forty seven, when the Mormons had the 
the, their little cabins in Pioneer Park. There was kind of a a square fort of of cabins, and she and uh, Eliza R. Snow shared a cabin, and they did seem to get along fairly well. And it was the two of them that actually sewed the uh, the, the flag of the Kingdom of Heaven for the July 24th, 1849 celebration in which basically Brigham Young proclaimed the state of Deseret as a sovereign state, you know, not affiliated with the United States. And they went up on Enzyme Peak and raised a giant flag. It was Eliza R. Snow and Augusta Cobb who stowed that flag. And it's pale, it it's, has pale blue and white stripes 13 of them and then there's in the field there's uh, 12 stars in a circle and in the center of the circle is a large star and that represents either jesus and the 12 apostles or the prophet and the 12 apostles but um yeah so they she she did have a pretty good relationship with lizar see that that's interesting because um before we get this notion that Augusta is like so unstable and just, you know, crazy to deal with, like Eliza or Snow didn't put up with a lot. So it's surprising to me that she would have gotten along, which might suggest that maybe Augusta was crazier. Crazy is a hard word. Um, <laughs> more emotional in her romantic life. And, and I could say the same thing. I know some really like solid solid women but when it comes to their love life it's just a lot of emotion all bets are off (laughs) yeah all bets are off that's a hard thing do you think she loved Brigham do you think she actually loved him I'm sorry your voice faded oh sorry yeah do you think that she was actually in love with Brigham uh yeah I, I really do and especially initially very deeply and then Later on, kind of off and on, but yeah, I, I, I do do believe so. And I, and also about the, her relationship with Lizar Snow, you know, this is early. This is still like 1848 and 1849. And a lot of these letters that I have are written in the 50s and 60s. So, you know, there's, I think as she got older and lonelier and uh, more desperate, she, she was impoverished. Brigham left her destitute which which really angers me i mean he'd had this little house built for her but you know she had virtually no skills to make a living on her own and she's supporting a a daughter and she had she resorts to stealing from the bishop's storehouse and and gets caught and and she after she gets caught she gets caught twice actually stealing from there but she uh, she writes to Brigham and it says, I don't care. I'll do it again. <laughs> you know? Everybody's trying to chastise me for this and I will do what I have to, to survive is her response. Yeah. Which good for her, you know, but. Um, <laughs> I think that, I think that just illustrates how difficult it was for women of that time, especially as plural wives. I mean, it really was like Todd Compton said in sacred loneliness, right. And for a different reason being married to Brigham, but you would have been really on your own for a lot of things. And you were at his mercy. I mean, all church members were already at his mercy, but his wife specifically, because they don't really, I mean, they have to go through him for everything. Right. 
Right. And if you weren't a wife who was actively having sexual intercourse with him and bearing him children, you, you, you were basically dead to him in, on, in many ways. And Augusta was not having any more. She never had another, a child by Brigham. So, you know, she's, she's really left on her to her own devices. And then, you know, this is territorial Utah before the train comes here. So isolated. Even if she wanted to leave, there's no way that she could have left. You know, that she had no resources whatsoever. Her only option was to stay in Salt Lake City and do the best with what she could here. Why do you think Brigham married her? Do you have any insight on that? Why? I mean, it's clear he saw her as someone else's wife. Ooh, that's he... a good question. And I've never actually thought about that before. <laughs> huh. Why would Brigham marry her? Well, she was beautiful. You know, and, and she was educated. And, and he wasn't having a lot of good luck with the ladies early on. <laughs> well, this is really early on, so. Yeah, um, well, that's what I'm saying. Like, I always think, I think of the Martha Brotherton story where she not only denies him, but then she denies him and goes to the press and embarrasses him. It seems to me that, I mean, I'm extrapolating my opinion from your research on his views, his evolving views on miscegenation. But to me, it seems like he just got his pride hurt. Like he, mm. women were denying him and all of these black men in Boston are getting white wives and Brigham's not as lucky. Is that a unfair read? Oh, wow. I love that. <laughs> no, it's not unfair at all. I think that's really interesting and, and possibly could be. Yeah. I mean, I, you can, <laughs> Hell hath no fury than a white man turned down who deserves <laughs> lots of plural wives. So, <laughs> and one of the most fascinating things about the letters of Augusta Adams Cobb that I found were that in two of them she refers specifically to quote unquote the priesthood vested in me. So she apparently believed that she held Mormon priesthood, which is really fascinating. Now, she did go through her second anointing prior to her saying these things, and some Mormon scholars have suggested, and I concur, that women, when they get their second anointings, receive Mormon priesthood. The first time that she refers to this uh, to her having the priesthood is three days after Christmas in 1847. Uh, she's in winter quarters waiting to go to Utah. Her friend from Boston, Amy C. Aldrich, who is a Mormon and who'd been in Nauvoo, has gone back to Massachusetts to visit her family before go coming to Utah. And so uh, Amy had written to Augusta, Augusta and asked for a blessing from her. And so Augusta writes back in 1847, um, telling her, you, know, you have asked a blessing at my hands. And so Augusta then kind of turns to God for direction in this letter that she writes. And, and basically, she gives what I call a matriarchal blessing to ABC Aldrich. And she, invoking the name of Jesus Christ, Augusta blessed her friend Amy with the, all the desires of her heart, 
with a promise that God would gather the Aldriches to Utah and that Amy's good name would, quote, be handed down in honorable remembrance to the latest generations, end of quote, that she'd have the power to save all of her kindred and that she would come to Utah in the following spring. And then Augusta says, I seal this blessing upon your head in the name of Jesus Christ and by virtue of the priesthood vested in me. Amen. End of quote. Is that not amazing? That is incredible. I mean, I, I think that that has so many different implications, not just uh, like a window into her life, but to some of the potential that, that the theology would hold for women. Yes. Yeah. Now to understand the second priesthood reference, I have to give you a little bit of, of background. Um, and that involves the fact that Brigham Young and Augusta uh, arrived in Nauvoo from Boston on the 22nd of October, 1843. Sometime over about the next eight or nine days, Joseph Smith visits Augusta requesting to, to be sealed to her. But in preparation for this, Brigham Young has already told her, Joseph is probably going to ask you to be sealed to, to, to him instead of to me. And I want you to promise to never meet with him alone. Okay. Um, and so, so she's never alone the two times that Joseph comes, and she turns down both proposals, and um, which she later deeply regretted. And, and in an undated fragment of a letter that's in this collection, she wrote, quote, Had I been left free to have been sealed to Brother Joseph when I arrived at Nauvoo, it would have saved me a great deal of suffering and humiliation. Although he sent for me twice, I would not break that promise not to see Brother Joseph alone. So that's from one fragment, that in a, uh, which is undated. In this, an 1862 letter to Brigham, so this is quite a, some years later, almost 20 years later, she reminds him that, quote, I should have seen Brother Joseph privately the first thing. But instead of that, you exacted a promise of me that I would not see him alone, saying he would certainly overcome me. I replied, if he did, he'd be the first man to do so. <laughs> wow. Okay. And, and to clarify that this is referring to sex, she says, you then, oh, you then said I had never had to deal with a prophet of the Lord before. Now. Suppose he had overcome me, and I should, by that means, have raised up a son or a king. Then I should have been sealed to him, referring to Joseph, and all would have been right. End of quote. So, so is she tying her disappointment to the fact that she didn't have male descendants? Or explain that to me. Well, I... Again, this is her wanting to be upwardly mobile. She she wanted Brigham Young was too low for her. <laughs> She's realizing this. She wants to go higher, so she wanted she wanted she wanted to retroactively be sealed to Joseph Smith, and is supposing that you know if if she'd done so, 
in Nauvoo and then had sexual relations with Smith and had a, a son that he would be the king at, at some point. So she's, you know, there's this kind of reference to Mormon royalty in there. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes sense. So, um, do we have any insight to, as to why she turned down Joseph Smith twice? Because I think that that's pretty explosive information. Considered that this means that Joseph Smith was obviously approaching more women, which we've had rumors of, but here's some proof that he was approaching more women and they were turning him down. Yes. Um, you know, Todd Compton in his book goes over some of the, some of the ways that Joseph Smith was manipulative with women in getting them to be sealed. But as she, as she clearly states, Brigham Young, before they even got to New, had a, had exacted a promise from her to not see him alone because he Young knew that Smith would try to to move in on Augusta and get get sealed to her rather than Young getting sealed to her. So he's Young has kind of staked his claim over Augusta and made her promise to 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 be sealed to him rather than to Smith. So that. That to me is fascinating. And I think I'm going to be thinking about that for a while because we talk about, you know, in this little series we're doing about Boston Mormons, about Brigham Young's pride. And uh-huh. it's pretty outlandish for Brigham Young to have to. I mean, we know that William Clayton had a similar experience with Joseph Smith, but wow, can you imagine competing with Joseph Smith if you're Brigham Young? It's it's a hard competition. And, and Brigham Young this is really reflective of his his entire life, right? He will yes. be powerful. He'll be the line of the Lord, but he can never quite be Joseph Smith. And he's always wanting to be. His entire life, to me, his entire life revolves around trying to, to be Joseph Smith and maybe even to one-up him in a way. And, you know, he, he just never is Joseph Smith, of course. Um so, so, uh, so is Augusta's signing of Smith, sometimes in her letters are referring to that, is that her way of reminding Brigham that she promised him, um, but she could have had a better shot? Is that what she's doing? Well, let, 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 let's go through, the. Let, let, let's hit the second reference to her, her having the priesthood, because as we talk about that, that that'll become more clear how, how and why she uses Smith, okay? So they got to Nauvoo on the 22nd of November. Joseph Smith tries twice to get her to be sealed to him, but she turns him down. And then on the 2nd of November, Brigham Young and Augusta are sealed together by Joseph Smith with Brigham's living wife, surviving wife, Mary Ann Young, present. And then without Augusta not knowing this, apparently, uh, Smith then seals Brigham Young to Harriet Cook, who is sitting there in, in, in witnessing this. So now Augusta's like, oh, okay, Harriet's now my sister wife. And and again, she didn't know that Brigham had already married Clarissa Decker. So all of a sudden, all these wives are starting to pile up on her, that, and she thought she was number two, but now she, but she's actually number three. And number four is sealed the same day. You know, but 
So that, that happens. And then th- uh, two and a half years later, on the 2nd of February, 1846, uh, Augusta goes through three really important uh, religious ceremonies in the now sort of completed Nauvoo Temple. So uh, according to Mormon procedures back then, any ceilings that had been done outside the temple had to be repeated in the now completed temple. So on the, on that day, 2nd of February, 1846, Brigham Young and Augusta were resealed for both time and eternity in the temple by Heber C. Kimball. Now you have to remember at that time, there were two different, you, you, there were three ways you could get sealed. You could, you could do a ceiling for time and then a separate ceiling for eternity to a different man or you could have them done both at the same time. And apparently on this day, both were done at the same time. She was sealed for time and eternity to young. And then back to back, the the next ritual that they went through was the adoptive sealing that was done in which uh, Isaac Morley and his wife, Lucy, Robert and Hannah Pierce, and then James and Marianne Graham were adopted to Brigham Young and Augusta as their spiritual children. Do you know about the the adoptive ritual and is that kind of understood? Mm -hmm. Okay. So they get these three couples who are all older than them, I think, (laughs) sealed to them as their children. Um, And then per her demand, she received her second anointing, which made her a, a queen and a priestess in the kingdom of God and apparently ordained her into priesthood, with Brigham Young acting as a proxy for Joseph Smith. Now, she's not sealed to Joseph Smith as a wife yet, but for some reason she convinces Brigham to to be Joseph Smith in this second anointing ritual, you know, in which, like I said, she's she's made a a queen and a priestess, and then uh, they exchange the washing of feet and Augusta prepared, uh, ceremonially prepared Joseph Smith, really Brigham Young, for burial, death, and, and resurrection. That, that was what the, the second anointing ritual was about. Okay, So it's really strange how she got the second anointing done with Joseph Smith using a proxy. Have any historians weighed in on that or... Is this pretty? Not, not that I know of. But they, they have on the adoptive ritual because that's an anomaly in that all other adoptive ceilings of parents to their spiritual children, it's the, the children are sealed to a, a father and his first wife only. So all the other adoptive ceilings that Brigham Young went through were done with him and Mary Ann Young as the parents. This is the only time in Mormon history where it was where it was a, a husband and a plural wife had adoptive children sealed to them. So that's really unique. And Jonathan Stapley has covered that, but I don't think anyone's dealt with this unusual second anointing ritual that she had done. Yeah, that's very rare, I think. I mean, rare to have this documentation of it. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's fascinating. 
So with that as background, uh, and that, so that again, that's February of 1846. Um, in February of 1848, so two years later, um, she's still in, in winter quarters. She's going to come to Utah in the spring, but she, at this point, she's still in winter quarters. And she sits down and writes what she titles The Last Will and Testament of Augusta Adams. And this is not a probate will, like, you know, I give to my kids my clothes and my furniture and all that. This is actually a statement of her will, but what she wants to have happen. And so the quorum of the first presidency has, ju has just been organized finally since Joseph Smith's death, right? Uh, Brigham Young, and, and, it's, and it's composed of Brigham Young as president of the church, and then his counselors, Heber C. Kimball and Willard Richards. So she addresses this last will and testament of hers to the quorum of the first presidency, and, and she says, uh, this is to certify that the last will and testament of the said Augusta is to be sealed to Joseph Smith, Jr., deceased for eternity, believing it to be the will of God and being actuated from a sense of duty towards him, meaning God, as well as from a free and unbiased choice. And I do this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by virtue of the holy priesthood vested in me, because I consider it necessary to my salvation, exaltation, calling, and election. I do it because I am living under a broken covenant. The first covenant, which I made with Brigham Young and Mary Ann, his wife, having never been fulfilled. And then the second, which I made in the Nauvoo Temple, but not being from choice, but being constrained. So I do not consider it binding or lawful. Therefore, I feel it my duty to come out from it and disannul it altogether. And then, so um, here she's referring to the two different sealing ceremonies she's done. The one outside the temple in which Brigham Young was sealed to her by Joseph Smith with Marianne as a witness. And then the second time when they, when they were resealed together in the temple at Nauvoo. But here she's saying she was coerced into doing it at, at the, the, the wow. temple. You know, she says, not being from choice, but constrained. So that's really interesting. I think this is important, too, to give context to. We talk about how she seems a little cranky or emotional. I mean... Look at these dynamics she's juggling, though. This is yeah. this is not nothing. No, no, she. You know, she's been manipulated by both Joseph Smith and and Brigham Young constantly. You know, you know, Young especially constantly. But and she's trying to stay afloat herself and not be overwhelmed by all this authority you know, around her that who are kind of abusing their authority, in my opinion. Right, right. No, that's, that's how it reads to me as well. And so, I, the, and then this, this is written, the document is actually not in her hand, but in the hand of Thomas Bullock, who was the first presidency's clerk. And it's signed by Willard Richards and Heber C. Kimball. 
her her this last will a testament of hers which she is given by the virtue of the holy priest invested in her is signed by members of the first presidency wow which is really really interesting and then uh, a month later she is Brigham Young acquiesces and she is sealed to Joseph Smith for eternity as a plural wife of his. So that's how she can feel that her last name is Smith. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, again, it's so interesting to see how she's navigating the small amount of soft power that she does have, right? Yes. I, I like that soft power. I've never heard that term before. Yeah, I mean, soft power is what women in the church have a lot of. (laughs) Yeah, that is fascinating. I think that that's essential to understanding the context, too. Yeah. But so, uh, you know, the fact that a document written by the clerk of the First Presidency mentions her having holy priesthood, and then it's signed by two members of the First Presidency, completely validates that it's not just her own belief that she holds priesthood, but they believed that she hold priesthood, hold priesthood too. And I think that this is very significant because there is there are some scholars like Maxine Hanks, Margaret Toscano, who were excommunicated for writing about these issues, women with priesthood. And Mike, Mike Quinn, he also speculated that women might have been given the priesthood. And I read the apologist arguments and, you know, they try to argue that it's a stretch or that it's only related to women in the temple. But this, I think that this is an argument in their favor. Yeah. I mean, it, it, like I said, I do, I do believe that it's probably because of her having received the second anointing in the temple, but it's still, she's holding priesthood and she's using it as such, you know, when she gives this matriarchal blessing, to her friend, Amy Aldrich. She's using it outside the temple. Outside the temple. Yeah. Long long distance by mail. (laughs) Yeah, that's very interesting. So, um, yeah, that's fascinating. I think that's a really important piece to this history. And what would you say to people who are hearing this for the first time? Because we haven't really covered on this podcast uh, women's ordinations. We've talked about, which, of course, you've excavated this history of you know, early black members of the church getting priesthood. But what would you say to people who are hearing for the first time that women were being given the priesthood? Uh, get used to it. <laughs> <laughs> it happens, right? It, it, it happened. And I, you know, and if, if it is indeed a part of the second anointing ritual, then it's still happening because second anointings are happening. So, you know, there, 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 there could be a case that, that there are women alive today, having gone through a second anointing ritual in a temple, do hold priesthood. You know, others have speculated that it's just receiving the endowment uh, that is what gives women priesthood, but I, I'm not sure about that. Yeah, this I, seems like a whole different level. I mean, if because the endowment argument is women are ordained with the priesthood and they can use it in the temple. This is this is different. Yeah. Yes. So let me ask you about just some general questions about Boston, and then and then um, I'll let you go. But okay, so in in Boston, um, early Mormons 
there are a lot of shenanigans happening with William Smith, Samuel Brannan. What do you want to say about that time period? We're focusing a lot on that, but I think that it's so dramatic and we d- we just don't talk a lot about it, but this whole idea of spiritual wifery happening in this Boston branch seems to really have an impact on a lot of people like Wilford Woodruff and Samuel Brannan and and Brigham Young and William Smith and all of those people. So what what do you want to say about that time period and so, some of those scandals? Wow. Well, it, to me, it all revolves around William Smith, who was a loose cannon if there ever was one. And I always say that any foibles that Joseph Smith had were writ very large in Will, his brother, his younger brother, William Smith. You know, Joseph drank a little bit. William was an alcoholic. <laughs> Joseph maybe stretched the truth. William was an outright liar. Joseph, you know, was kind of exploring spiritual whiffery. William was just like, uh, I'm an apostle. I will have sex with whomever I have sex with. And we might call it a marriage. We might not, <laughs> you know. I also actually have an extent. I have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages written on William Smith that because uh, I was going to write a biography on him and um, called "Strange Fire," which was a, a phrase he used uh, about women being a strange fire upon his altar to God, and um, he. I I believe even before Joseph Smith died, William Smith was trying to set up his own version of Mormonism in New England, and particularly in Philadelphia and in Boston. Then once once Joseph was dead and out of the picture, all bets were off with William, and eventually he did create five different versions of the Mormon church from 1845 until 1856 complete with, you know, uh, first presidencies and he would try to get quorums of, of apostles, but he never filled a quorum out to 12 apostles because eventually he was sleeping with all the wives of the apostles and then they would get upset and, and abandon his churches. But, um, William just, he didn't let, he didn't follow rules he didn't know how to follow rules i don't think and he he just took advantage of a lot of these you know mormon women in in philadelphia but more so in in boston and sam brannan sam brannan who was kind of his right hand man of course just went with it as well um and, and is known to have had sex with some of the Boston women uh, and then got into a little bit of trouble, but you know, they'd get, they'd get their, they'd get excommunicated for 10 minutes <laughs> and then be allowed back to, into the church. That's when Mormonism was fun. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know. Right. Why don't they have, you know, like you, you're excommunicated for three months. <laughs> yeah. I want, I want fist fights in the temple. I want, Everyone drunk, getting drunk, drunk, drunk on sacramental race. wine. That's 
That's the kind of Mormonism I want to go to church for. Yeah, but I'll I'll let you do. <laughs> not it's not for me anymore. <laughs> yeah, I know it's a bummer. <laughs> well, but, is there anything else you want to say about Boston Mormons? Like, what if there's one thing or several things you want people to understand about that time period? Um, not, I mean, just off the top of my head, one of the things that I found interesting was the fact that so many. Boston Mormons revolved around the furniture business. And I think that that's kind of how Mormonism really spread in, in, in Boston. You had a number of Mormon converts who made varnish for furniture. You had a number of Mormon converts who provided lumber for the furniture industry. You had a number of Mormon people running furniture company where they actually made furniture. You had a number of Mormon converts who made upholstery for the furniture. And then you had a number of Mormon converts who all restored old furniture. So you would <laughs> with that, that web of furniture making and uh, refurbishing was a, a, a really a major theme with all these early Mormon converts. Not all of them, but a lot of the early Mormon Boston converts. And I, I I think that's really fascinating. Well, I just can't say enough for the work that you've done. And I, I think you're a treasure to not just the Mormon historical community, but the community of American history. You've done so much good work there. And, and you've done a lot of LGBT history for Utah too. I mean, you, by living it, you made history. So (laughs) But I'm also I'm also actively researching and preserving it as well, which I'm really proud of. And you know, uh, when the LDS Church came out with that awful anti-gay policy two and a half years ago, that's when I abandoned all of my Mormon history and vowed I'd never have anything to do with it again. This is a unique exception. I hope you. I know you really appreciate it, but um, you know. Deciding to quit all of that has actually really been a great motivation for me to to start focusing again on LGBT Utah history and LGBT Mormon history and LGBT American history. And so I I am really glad that I stepped away from, from Mormon history so that I could focus on what actually is far more important to me. Yeah, and I appreciate you um, coming back to discuss this because I know what a toll that takes on you. This is a this is a big deal for you to come back. So, and it's a huge personal favor. And so, because of that, I want to um, talk about ways that we can reward you. I noticed that we put it. We talked about your GoFundMe for a car, um, and we already had someone, a listener, Paula Breen, donate. So, thank you, Paula. But Right now, you, and you and you did too. <laughs> Thank yeah, you very much. I did too. I mean, it's it is truly the very least I can do. I don't think people understand how much you've given to this community. But you're trying to get a new car. Um, yes. Your goal is three thousand dollars, and you're at eight hundred and seventy-seven dollars by the time we're recording this podcast. So, listeners out there, come on! Like, you guys can, we can do this. Like, it's not hard. That's such an easy goal. But do you want to tell us about the car? About the car. Yeah, well, what, I, what are you trying to do? Do you have a certain car in mind? You need I, I, well, I would like it like a little Subaru, 
you know, Outback or something used. Absolutely. Of course, uh, under 150,000 miles. Uh, you know, I'm, I want to get out. I'm a desert rat. I love Moab and Arches National Park. And I need to get out there and be in that beautiful desert that I love. And so, you know, something like a Subaru that uh, d- does well in the city, but also I can throw into four wheel drive. That's, that's what I'm, I'm looking for. And, you know, uh, it, it's, I don't want to get into <laughs> Well, I don't, I don't want to make you uncomfortable at all, but I will tell listeners, uh, for you know, if everyone gives ten bucks, the price that you'd spend on, as John Larson says, a burrito instead of spending money on a burrito, eat at home tonight and just throw some money Connell's way. Please, please. Well, it's you know, historians already don't make a lot of money, and yet no. you're doing this as a passion project. You don't really publish your stuff. You, I don't know that you've really seen a lot of money in the Mormon community, and to me, that's a shame. We, you are exactly the kind of people that we need to be supporting in this work because it's such good work and it, and you're looking in places that other people aren't. So everybody out there, this is me. Like this is your calling. I am <laughs> commanding you uh, as the lioness of this podcast. You see the lioness. I love you. Yes. So everybody uh, give Connell some money to his GoFundMe. If we hit the GoFundMe um, and you know, this podcast is going to be around for years later. I'm going to link to, uh, I think is, is it your Venmo that we link to? It's your Venmo we link to on the, on the podcast or the PayPal. So go click on that. And just today as a nice thing to do, just give a couple dollars to Connell O'Donovan. It's not going to cost very many people anything. Um, but I just want to support you. It's such an honor to, and a, like a privilege to have you on the podcast. Cause I know that you have forsaken this community for a good reason. And so I appreciate you spending the effort to come back. Well, thank you very much, Lindsay. Uh, it, it's a great talking with you. I hope I have sounded a little bit intelligent, like you know what I'm talking about, but um, this was, this was okay. It wasn't as painful as I thought it would be. I've, I've actually never listened to a podcast in my life. So, um, well, buckle up because now you're going to listen to your own voice and it's the most embarrassing thing ever. So, everybody hates listening to their own voice. I I do already. I've heard it. (laughs) It's like, who is that? That does not sound (laughs) like me. Anyway. Well, thanks again. And again, check out uh, Connell's site, which I'm linking here, and you can spend hours on it. I mean, he has written these stories, just these little jewels and treasures that you're not going to get anywhere else. And I really do think that that's the future of Mormon history is excavating stories outside of the traditional Mormon like Nauvoo and Salt Lake. It's it's these stories that are shaping Mormonism elsewhere. So thanks again, Connell. You're so welcome, Lindsay. Take care. The song you just heard is called My Disguise by Mikkel Douse. Her album is available for purchase on iTunes or Apple Music. Thanks for listening.